0: Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This
1: podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover Two Resources, on your platform of choice.
0: Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. My guest today is Ryan Hampton, a national addiction recovery advocate and a former White House staffer who is actually in recovery after a 10 years of active opioid addiction himself. Ryan is a leading voice in America's growing recovery movement. His new book, titled American Fix, was released just this month. In it, he profiles his struggles with opioid dependence and his desperate search to find help. He also shares his account of the Addiction Across America project, which was his road trip through America's drug epidemic. And he concludes with something that I found very, very interesting, which is a seven-point rating system to determine how pro-recovery a given politician actually is, as well as he's got a pledge in there that politicians, if they're really serious about this, they can pledge to commit support on matters related to combating addiction. So, Ryan, welcome. It's
1: great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Okay. So, let's start off. Can you briefly describe a little bit about how a successful, smart, articulate guy such as yourself got addicted to pills in the first place and how you managed to find help?
1: You know, I, uh, I was definitely not your, your target market for being someone who would get addicted to heroin and, and fall down that spiral. Um, I was, you know, I worked in the White House. I had an up-and-coming career. Uh, I did well in school, Um, you know, I I was kind of on to doing things uh, in my life, and then in 2003, um, while I was still living in Washington, D.C., I went on a hiking trip, and during that hiking trip, I slipped and I I, uh, broke my ankle and hurt my knee, and I went to an urgent care center. Now, you got to remember this was back in 2003 before we knew all that we know today about opioids. and I was prescribed a very high grade, uh, opioid hydromorphone, which is also known as Dilaudid, um, for that injury. Now I was supposed to get an MRI. I never got that MRI. Um, I got multiple prescriptions, uh, from the same doctor for the hydromorphone. Uh, a few months later, I had moved back to Florida. It just happened to be right in the middle of a move. Um, And if you know anything about South Florida in the early to mid 2000s, it was at the height of what we now know was the uh, pill mill epidemic, Uh, they used to call it the Oxycontin Express. And I received a referral from my primary care physician to see a pain specialist because the pain really uh, was still kind of, uh, you know, uh, raw and throbbing and dull uh, everywhere I went and um, walked out of my first uh, pain doctor's office, um, you know, early 2004. Uh, with a prescription for, you know, way too many uh, Oxycontin and Oxycodone and all sorts of medications. Um, You know, it sounds naive now, uh, but I really did not know then. uh, I did not make the connection between drug dependence, addiction, um, you know, the physical dependence on these pills. Uh, I was told by the doctors, the prescriber, uh, that it was, you know, very low risk of addiction, uh, that it was very easy to come off of. Um, that it will help me manage my pain and kind of provide a gap for me, uh, that if I wanted to come off of them, that I could at any time, that it could be medically supervised, or I could do it at home just to wean off at you know, 15 to
0: 20 percent of my medication every day. Next, Ryan describes being tagged as a drug seeker.
1: I went to one of my doctors to get my refill, and I was tagged as a drug seeker. Uh, I was called a junkie. I was told to get out of the office. They cut me off my medications uh, abruptly. And if you know anything about opioids and what it does to the brain and how it hijacks the brain, uh, you'll know that the, the power of choice and the just stop, you know, had far been gone for me. Um, and it was a very quick descendant into to heroin use and illicit, uh, you know, drugs from the street from there.
0: And you outlined that experience in your book and the shame that this particular physician put you through, an embarrassment. Yeah, it was
1: an embarrassment. You know, I, I was caught up in what is called a PDMP, which is a physician uh, tracking database, a physician monitoring database where they could see, you know, how many pills you're on, who your prescribers are, XYZ. The purpose of these databases was really set up initially to protect the prescriber and that's how they were used. Um, They weren't necessarily identifying people who might have a problem and giving them resources resources and showing them where to go to get help. Uh, They were literally kicking people out of doctor's offices and calling them criminals and junkies and telling them if they showed up, they'd be charged with trespassing and, I mean, all sorts of threats that went to me and, um, you know, criminalizing uh, addiction and substance use disorder, which we know is a, is a health problem. It's a chronic brain illness. And, um, you know, those databases were not set up to protect me and people like me. And, and, and what we know now today in 2018 is that 80 percent of people who start heroin, who who use heroin, uh, started with a prescription medication of some kind, whether it was prescribed or taken from a friend or a Brian's medicine cabin or whatnot, it's 80% start with a pill.
0: Next, Ryan talks about how difficult it was for him to get in treatment. Thanksgiving Eve 2014, I, I finally
1: was able to get into a treatment center. Um, I had been homeless and calling treatment centers for, for months, it seemed like. 30-day, 60-day, 90-day waiting lists. Couldn't get in. I was on the streets, and by luck and pure circumstance, I was I, I received a scholarship. Uh, that bet at one of them after trying very, very hard. Um And even at that treatment center, it was almost just kind of a a dry out period for me. I I wasn't necessarily getting the types of supports, recovery supports and clinical services I should be getting. But what happened for me that was different, that has helped me, that has led me down this sustained path of recovery was the day I got out of treatment. By pure luck, again, in circumstance, I landed in uh, a recovery house, a recovery residence, a sober living, they're also known as. Um, a stable one, one that was able to support me in my early months of recovery, one that was able to provide me with a peer support environment uh, that nurtured my recovery and put me around people who wanted the same thing that I did. I was able to access employment early on in recovery. I was able to access health care supports to take care of certain uh, health problems that I was having as a result of using. I was able to find some purpose in my recovery because I had people who were mentoring me and training me. Uh, you know, in, into, a, into a, a new job and, and, and uh, new trades. And, um, you know, we now know the 2016 Surgeon General's report on, on uh, alcohol, drugs, and, and health um, states that after, if you can get someone to their first five years, through their first five years of recovery, they have an 85% shot at sustaining that recovery for the rest of their life. So why aren't we focusing on the types of recovery supports that we need for people after they leave treatment to get them past that first five years? You know, we call this, and this was my experience, a chronic disease, a chronic health problem, but the healthcare system still only treats it in an acute ambulatory response. We're really only providing funding and supports for people in those first, you know, critical months. We're not giving them the supports and the resources and the tools that they need for when they leave treatment, um, which is the recovery period. Recovery starts the day, you know, let's, let's get this straight. Recovery starts the day you leave treatment. Treatment is treatment. That's, it by definition, it is the crisis response to the health problem. Recovery starts the day you leave treatment, when you've got those supports in place, um, you know, that help lead you hopefully onto
0: long-term recovery. So let's talk about recovery. Speak a little bit about how being anonymous actually perpetuates stigma in addiction recovery Be, if, if you can talk about being in recovery, if you can talk about your experience, if you can identify
1: as someone who's in recovery, you are only helping us end this crisis. You know, there's 45 million Americans who are impacted by addiction. Again, that's 23 million Americans who live in long-term recovery. That's about another 21, 22 million Americans who are uh, currently in need of help right now that are currently suffering. It's a very large group of people. And if you look at the history of movements, only when we're able to unify as a cause as unify as a group, unify as a constituency, let others know who we are, that we exist, put a face and voice to recovery and demand change.
0: Yeah. And that was really your point in bringing that up even in the book and as uh, well taken. So um, in your book, you also cite an, a really interesting stat. Apparently, doctors from lower tiered medical schools were more likely to prescribe opioids. In fact, nearly three times as many per year as doctors who graduated from highly ranked medical schools. That's, that's really an eye.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's correct, but it opens up a larger issue. So, um, prescriber education is a huge issue in the United States. Um, even the, the, the more educated doctors in ER rooms, um, still overprescribe. you know, we're, we're never going to really end this crisis by just dealing on the supply side. Um, of the problem, we have to be looking at the demand side, which is the users and the people who need recovery, and people who need supports and making sure they're there. But on the su- supply side, we also, especially in the emergency rooms, we need to reduce prescribing by, by anywhere near, you know, close to, to 80% um, because that's where, you know, a lot of this pro- a lot of these problems start um, for many Americans is in the ER room. And prescribers are not educated. They're not educated on the symptoms of addiction. They're not educated on what it looks like when somebody might have a problem. Um, the ER physicians, um, you know, who prescribe more, uh, you know, it is a known fact, uh, according to a study that was that was published by Stat magazine, which is part of the Boston Globe uh, earlier this year, um, just kind of hand out pills like candy, you know, um, they are not educated. Now, even if you take into account, though, like the Harvard med schools and the higher tier uh, medical schools, um, they're only providing on average about 30 to 40 minutes of education and training on addiction. Over the course of four entire years in medical school, it's not even a credit. It's a certification. So that's unacceptable. You know, a I, I, short story, I um, had to go to the dentist earlier this year uh, for some work I was doing uh, on my on my teeth. And I went in and I filled out the form and they said, are you allergic to anything? And I said, yes, I am. No narcotics, no opioids. I circled it in red. I said, "Just, just, you know, whatever it is. I'll deal with it. Give me ibuprofen. I don't want anything like this. They said, okay, they brought me in uh, doctor, you know, before the work, uh, says, Hey, you know, uh, what about meds? I gave him the, the warning. Then I gave the nurse the warning. Um, they did the work. Uh, they came back and they said, okay, we're going to get you your prescriptions of which I thought was just going to be an antibiotic. And the nurse shows up with a prescription for Tylenol three, which has opioids in it. Uh, it, it has codeine in it, which is an opioid. And lucky for me, I was, Self-aware enough to just tear it up and not take it. Um, but what if I had been earlier in my recovery? Right, I had put the warning out there multiple times. But after really looking at the situation, what I realized was it wasn't that the nurse brought me an opioid on purpose. They didn't even know that Tylenol 3 was an opioid, right? It was it was prescriber miseducation and undereducation and not really understanding how dangerous this could be for someone like me. Um, Completely threw it out the window. So there's a lot of work we need to do there um, to reduce opioid prescribing in high-risk environments like dental offices and emergency rooms.
0: And that's a very good point, I think, that it extends beyond just the physicians to many of the staff that are involved there. They need that education just as well.
1: Right. Yep, absolutely.
0: This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and re-entry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. You spend a little bit of time in American Fix talking about D.A.R.E. as well as the War on Drugs and the fact that they haven't worked. Why haven't they worked?
1: Well, I mean, the War on Drugs has really been a war on drug users. I mean, you can look at the history of the War on Drugs. Um, It was, you know, it was perpetuated by by the White House in the 80s and Reagan. And um, it it, it contributed to the boom of the private prison system in the United States. It it disproportionately locked up black Americans. Um, It was really a war on people, not necessarily a war on drugs, Uh, and I think the history and the data and the stats are there to support it, Um, we completely missed the mark on the war on drugs, and that's one of the things that that does scare me today is we see inklings of of the language and some of the policies coming out of this administration that really, really eerily resemble uh, the policies of the Reagan administration and subsequent administrations that subscribed to the war on drugs. Uh, we need to be looking at this as a health problem. The war on drugs criminalizes addiction. It criminalizes the user. It criminalizes the person with the problem. It does nothing to help uh, lead someone on a path to wellness and recovery. You know, we shouldn't be locking up drug users. I mean, that does nothing but feed the prison pipeline. Um, it keeps people sick, but it also makes people a lot of money. It makes corporations a ton of money. So we have to, you know, address a lot when we address the war on drugs specific to dare, you know, I, I am, I am the perfect product of dare. I, I was a dare kid. I was a dare uh, ambassador. I saw all the TV commercials. I participated in all the dare plays. I participated in the coloring books and all the messaging and the t-shirts dare. The, 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 the program of dare was to scare us from not using drugs. What we found, what studies have found, you know, in the past decade, was that participants, people who had been through D.A.R.E. programs, actually had a higher rate of uh, experimenting with drug use because they were interested. And that scaring people out of using drugs did not keep them from using drugs. Um, It actually did the opposite. Um, You can't scare kids from using drugs. That's just something we know. You can educate them, you can provide them with information, but you can't scare them. D.A.R.E. was a, a, a program where police and law enforcement talked to kids. We know that the most effective way of preventing kids from getting on drugs is from the peer level. So it's creating peer programs like the keeping it real program, uh, that's being housed in at the university of Pennsylvania. Uh, it started out in Arizona, uh, which is teaching kids to talk to kids, uh, and what to do in those moments of truth, those moments when, when drug, you know, drugs show up, how do we support each other? How do we provide them with information? How do we encourage each other not to do this? Because at the end of the day, it's not gonna be a police officer that's going to keep their, you know, keep the kid from having a blunt or a, you know, uh, a substance or a pill in their hand, it's more than likely, you know, nine times out of ten, it's another cure.
0: And you dedicated a significant amount of American Fix to uh, shining a shining spotlight on people and real programs that are making a difference in the opioid epidemic. So I was hoping we might be able to have you speak uh, just about a few of them. Real, of course, is one of them, which uh, that stands for uh, refuse, explain, avoid and leave. Right.
1: Yep. Um, you know, there's several, the McShin foundation. I was just with them this weekend in Richmond, Virginia. It's a nonprofit recovery community organization. Um, they are fully funded by the community. Uh, they uh, are able to accept people for treatment, for recovery, housing, for recovery supports, for outpatient, regardless of ability to pay. If you show up at their door and you need help, they have same day services that are available for people. Um, there are no waiting lists. You know, they, they work on a sliding scale. If you have the ability to pay, you pay. If you have no insurance, they help you get on insurance. If you have no money and no insurance, they take you in on a scholarship. We need more of those around the country. I'm, I'm fascinated that in, in one of the largest cities in the United States here in Los Angeles, we don't have a qualified recovery community organization like that that can take people when they are ready right now. Um, the heroin addiction recovery program, which was just renamed to be encompassing of all uh, people who have uh, addiction problems to the Help Addicts Recover Permanently program at the Chesterfield County Jail uh, in rural Virginia. It is a program. You know the sheriff there. This was his solution to the to the to the to the prison boom uh, and substance use that's happening. You know as a result of people coming into jail. It was sick and tired of watching the same people come in and out of jail uh, with with these with these addiction problems uh, being arrested for crimes that were related to their addiction. Um, and he'd release them and they'd come right back on, on another charge or they die. Uh, and he said, this is wrong. What are we doing? We have to be catching this problem here. Uh, maybe we can do something about it here inside the jail. So he opened up this program where they're bringing in peer recovery supports. They're bringing in clinicians. They're bringing in behavioral health Uh, you know, they're, they're doing peer to peer, uh, trainings. They're training these people to be recovery specialists if they want a job when they get out. They're giving them passes, their they're, uh, supervised passes to go out during the day to, to get vocational support, um, and they have reduced recidivism by 82% in this jail, 82%. That is unheard of around the country. But guess what? This specific program, this jail, can't get funding. It couldn't get funding as of a year ago. The, the sheriff had to dig into his own budget to get it paid for. It only cost about $2,000 per year per inmate to get them help, right? Uh, you compare that to the cost of average cost of forty to fifty thousand dollars per year to keep them locked up. Doesn't make sense, but there's a lot of people who make money off of keep,
0: keeping us locked up. Another unique thing about sure. the program is when people are released, if they find that they're struggling, they can actually call and then come back in for help with the group. That's
1: correct. So they run an outpatient day program there too. Um, inmates who actually leave are, are are released into the community. Come back during the day and participate in day programs, so they stay plugged in and they get supports. Um, and then, if you are having that urge to use and you are out there, you can call nine one one at any time, twenty four hours a day. Um, and a sheriff's deputy will pick you up, bring you back to the jail, bring you right back to where you were with your peer community, and they will support you so you do not get high. Um, they are saving lives and healing communities in Chesterfield County, Virginia. It is fascinating. They also um, there, there, There is an addiction helpline um, that closes at midnight in their county, uh, which is kind of an odd time to close it, but because of funding, they are now routing that number, that helpline, into the jail, and people who need help with addiction, who need to talk to a support right away, that phone is ringing into the heart program, and they are talking to an inmate who is trained as a peer recovery support specialist to help walk that person through so they do not uh, make a bad decision. It, it, is, uh, it, it is just mind-blowing, some of the innovation that's happening there. and this. Our uh, superintendent is showing good outcomes as well, um, and he has told his superiors at the state if they have a problem, um, they can pretty much go whistle Dixie because he's trying something different. That's what we need to be doing.
0: So what other programs would you like to highlight there, Ryan? You know, there's advocacy organizations. You know,
1: Facing Addiction is one that people should check out. Uh, it, it, it's the one that, 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 that really stole my heart. Um, it is a national advocacy organization that, that is working to get people to recover out loud, to make policy change. To get involved, you know, I was, I was very afraid and fearful of getting involved in policy change and, and, and getting, you know, jumping in at that high level uh, in the beginning. But what I realized really quick was that our policymakers are ignorant and they actually know way less than we do about this issue. We know what to do because we've lived through it. So we may not have all the stats and the figures and the data and the science, but we've got our lived experience and our stories, which is the most powerful thing that we can have.
0: So in Fayette County, Ohio, you also mentioned the fact that uh... – Drug users with, uh, can be charged with inciting panic, and they can fine them yep. $1,000 and jail them for 180 days.
1: Yep. Um, again, that is, you know, just this old, a lot of this is that old thinking um, that we are going to arrest our way out of this problem, you know, and that's why my call to action around the book is getting politically involved, creating that constituency of consequence. Um, you know, that, that's the only way that we are going to be able to get over that type of thinking is by putting new leaders in who understand recovery, who are allied with our cause. Um, I I, I try to dive into it a little bit in the book, but sometimes, you know, it's just very hard to see where these people's thinking process is at. It, It just is. Um, they look at us differently. They think we're second class citizens. They don't think that we've got to, you know, the same, uh, you know, we don't deserve the same shot as any other American with a healthcare issue in
0: this country. And it's wrong. So policymakers are working on these pieces of legislation to address the epidemic today without people in recovery or their families that have been affected by it, without them having a seat at the table. How, how do you propose that we move forward uh, and can really live this message that you put out there, which is nothing about us without us?
1: Well, there is nothing about us without us. And the first step, you know, for me was telling my story. It was getting public about who I am. Um, you know, I was terrified, fearful. I, I did not know what to expect. But once I did tell my story, uh, I was overcome overcome with gratitude. Um, you know, I was getting people from all over the country, friends of mine, people I worked with, people I hadn't seen in years who reached out to me and either identified as someone who had struggled or was struggling or was in recovery or a family member, um, or knew someone who was in recovery. Uh, and it set me on this journey of what's next, uh, which led me to where I am today you know, and it is a highly personal decision, but it is the most important decision that you will ever make as either a family member. And I'm sure this is your experience too. Um, you know, or, or a person who is in recovery, share it with somebody. You, you are number one enemy, public enemy. Number one still remains shame and stigma. And when we can relate to people, when we can show them what it looks like, when we can normalize this experience, we open people's hearts and minds. And that is the most critical, most important thing that we can do. After someone has done that, Again, that journey of what's next, get involved. You're gonna to wanna to do something else. Get involved, contact your lawmakers. Let them, know, share, if it's nothing else than sharing your story, let them know what your experience was. Stay in tune with what's going on. Register to vote. Make sure that you are voting. Voting is so important because we need power in numbers. We also need to be calling out legislators who are using this issue as a political talking point and not taking action. Pay attention to your your legislators, your members of Congress, your people running for state and federal offices. What are they saying and is what they're saying matching up to their actions? Pay attention to organizations like Facing Addiction and Recovery Pack and um, other organizations who are starting to rate legislators and make sure that the public is well informed on where they stand. We have to turn addiction and recovery and the opioid crisis into a single issue for a voting block. We need a voting block just like the NRA, uh, you know, just like women's rights groups, just like civil, uh, civil social justice groups have, but, you know, recovery needs to be a voting block because once we are a voting block, I am convinced that after looking at these numbers, that we will be the most powerful, the largest voting block that has ever existed in the history of the United States. And we could
0: put an end to this crisis overnight. And you've committed to building that voting block to registering over a million recovery voters by 2020. So can you outline once you get there, what that block is going to advocate for?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, first we've got to get there. Um, We just kicked it off two weeks ago and we've received several thousand registrations since it is, it is well on its way. Uh, It is by 2020 that we want to register 1 million new recovery oriented voters, people in recovery, family of recovery, family recovery, or allies. Uh, Once we get there, we will start running our own for office. You know, we need our own in public office. We need to be advocating for evidence-based solutions uh, to the addiction crisis. We need to be uh, advocating for person-centered Community recovery, you know, recovery does not look, is not equal in all 50 states. Um, Recovery varies from state to state, depending on what funding they're getting, what cultural and geographic competencies. You know, we need to be looking at all options on the table.
0: Next, Ryan talks about a simple means to determine if your candidate is actually pro-recovery.
1: It goes anywhere from understanding, you know, who is helping these candidates, where their funding is coming from, what their connection to recovery is, what their stance is on the Eighth Amendment. Um, when it comes to, to criminal justice, uh, you know, it, it comes to uh, a treatment reform, um, humanizing addiction, mainstreaming addiction as a health care service and not having it kind of in its own silo. Um, I lay it out in the book and I encourage people to, to check it out.
0: Ryan shares his thoughts on what can be accomplished when people unite behind a pro-recovery cause.
1: My vision is that, you know, any American can walk into an ER room with an addiction problem and not just be given a piece of paper or resources, but can be treated right there on the spot, can be plugged in with peer recovery supports, that there's recovery community organizations in every single town and every single state in this country, that we have safe, stable, affordable housing for people who need it, uh, who are in recovery, that we have tax incentives for companies that employ people in recovery because we know that that is an important part of the continuum, that we have people in recovery who are running for office and making good policy about us, um, I think that we can, we can end this current-day addiction crisis. Now, we will always have addiction, um, but the, 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 the services, the need for services is definitely not being, you know, the demand is not being met by the, the need for services. Uh, I think we can increase those recovery support services so we can save lives.
0: Next, Ryan shares his final thoughts.
1: My final thought would be, and this is important, if you are listening and you are struggling If you are living in silence and shame as I did for, for well over a decade, you don't have to be reach out to someone, tell them, share, share what you are going through with a loved one, with a friend, seek help. Uh, do not live in silence. Do not live in shame. If you are a family member, uh, that is going through the same thing, I say to you also reach out and talk to someone, you know, there are millions across this country who have experienced exactly what you are are experiencing and you do not have to go through this alone.
0: How would someone go about getting signed on to become one of your block of voters?
1: Absolutely. Um, Go to recoveryvoicesvote.org, recoveryvoicesvote.org, register to vote, uh, and support us there. Um, That is a website that went live last week, and
0: people can check it out. I've been joined today by Ryan Hampton. He's the author of American Fix, Inside the Opioid Crisis and How It Can End. In the book, he profiles his struggles with opioid dependence and how he found help What I found most fascinating about the book was the fact that he spends a considerable amount of it profiling programs and people that are doing some great things to make a difference in the opioid epidemic. If you get an opportunity, pick up that book. It's American Fix. He's got some great ideas in it. I think you'll find it very enlightening. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover Two Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover Two PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit Cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together we can make a difference in the
0: opioid epidemic, one life at a time.